It's from Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 8, verse 34. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pick out. Let's pray. Father, as always, grateful that you gather us together. And as the psalm that we'll read a little later, as the psalm says, that you hem us in, that you are around and before and behind us. So this morning, we pray that all of the scripture that's read that we would be enlightened to its meaning by the power of your Holy Spirit. That it would not just be information, but it would be transformation, forming and shaping our very being, our identity, who we are. So open our minds, our eyes, and our ears, and our hearts that we could receive it. And prepare us and equip us and get us ready, empower us so that when we leave this place, that we can be doers of your word, just like John's gospel said, we can be doers of the truth everywhere we go. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. So uh, that little thing that Jesus said, I mean, no problem, right? No big deal. You wanna follow me, take up your cross. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. I mean, easy, right? Uh, Let me share this with you. It's from Tim Keller's book, Jesus the King. Um, I quote from this book a lot, but I'm telling you this book in 100 years is gonna be like mere Christianity. Um, It's gonna be one of the important books um, from this time. Uh, So he says this, he says, the deliberately chosen Greek word for life is the word psyche, from which we get our word psychology. So that's important because usually in the New Testament, the word life in Greek is the word zoe, which just talks about life in general, this is different. The author intentionally uses the word psyche. It's about our psychology. And he goes on, he says, it denotes your identity, your personality, your selfhood, what makes you distinct. Here's why this matters. Jesus is not saying, I want you to lose your sense of identity. He's not saying, I want you to lose your sense of self. Jesus is saying, don't build that identity on gaining the things of this world. So Keller goes on to say, he says, every culture points to certain things and says, if you gain those, if you acquire or achieve those, then you'll have a self. You'll know that you have value. And he goes on to explain that traditional cultures would say that that you're nobody unless you have the respectability and legacy of family and children. In a more modern individualistic culture, it's different. That culture is gonna say that you're nobody unless you gain a fulfilling career that brings money and reputation and status. His point is that regardless of the cultural differences, every culture believes that identity is based on your performance, that who you are is based on what you achieve. And Keller goes on to say this, he says, Jesus says that'll never work. Says if you gain the whole world, it won't be big enough or bright enough to cover up the stain of inconsequentiality that no matter what I do or what I achieve, I will always still feel inconsequential. He says, no matter how many of these things you gain, it's never enough to make you sure of who you are. 
So if you're building your identity on somebody loves me or if you're building your identity on I've got a good career and anything goes wrong with that relationship or with that job, you fall apart and you lose your sense of who you are. You lose your sense of identity. So for the next 12 weeks, together, we will be searching for what is true about me and about you. And we might as well have just used like Dr. Seuss font for that because that sounds very Seussical, doesn't it? (laughs) Searching for what's true about me and about you. We're talking about identity over the next 12 weeks and and we could have just gone with a simple title, like who are we? (laughs) Would have been easier. The problem is that question in and of itself is based on the belief that who we are as humans is defined and shaped by our culture and our context. And listen, that's partially true. It's not ultimately true. We could have also gone with, who am I? But that assumes that our search for identity is just an individual search. And it makes us think that I can be or do or become just anything that I wanna be. It's partially true, but it's not the ultimate truth. So we're gonna talk more about these cultural and individual perspectives on identity formation. We're gonna talk about that in the weeks to come. But as Keller noted in what I read to you, both of those perspectives are limited and they both end up being performance-based. Your identity is based on what you achieve and neither will suffice in answering the most important question. So rather than asking who are we or who am I, we are searching for what is true about me and about you. Okay, but we can't just assume that because we're asking the right question, that means that our journey is headed in the right direction. (laughs) Because the difficult thing about identity, this search for truth, everybody has a theory about who and what we are, but nobody actually knows who or what we are. (laughs) Like if you ask a biologist, rightly so, they will define it based on their field of study. They're gonna define human life based on DNA and physical attributes. Ask a psychologist on our mental and emotional state, a sociologist on the way that we engage and interact together in society. Some people will say that we are a product of our environment. Some will say that we're self-made. Others will say that we are what we do. Others that we are what we believe. Others will say we are what we eat. (laughs) But we know there's something else very important, what it means to be human. There's a spiritual dimension. Now that's kind of our area, right? But there's this temptation for us to just focus on the spiritual and not take into consideration the physical or the psychological. But here's the deal, scripture is really clear. Human is body, mind, and soul. Not one or two, we are all three. And if we are gonna search for what is true about me and about you, if we're ever gonna find an answer that will be of any use to us, we've gotta take it all into account and the scriptures actually help us do that. The problem is, even wrestling with scripture can make this search difficult because the scriptures say a lot of things about me and about you. Like for example, scriptures say that we are chosen and adopted, that we are loved, that we are holy and blameless, we are set free, we are ambassadors for Christ, we are more than conquerors. And every one of those are true, that's straight out of scripture. But y'all, what if I don't feel chosen? 
Like what if my family history or maybe just my own wiring makes it really hard for me to believe that somebody would just choose to adopt me, that I'm loved, (laughs) holy and blameless? (laughs) I don't think so. I don't always feel set free. What about the times when I'm not living as an ambassador for Christ? What if I'm not more than a conqueror? I often feel defeated. Sometimes I feel like a loser. You see, it's possible to read and engage with scripture in a way that will lead us to, it'll lead us to start believing that we must be all those things. That we must feel and believe that we are all those things if we're gonna truly call ourselves followers of Jesus. That we have to be those things first. And when that happens, our salvation begins to hinge on whether I feel loved, whether I feel holy or set free or victorious. And when that happens in the church, we're no different than any other culture or context. We begin to shape and form our identity based on our achievement, on our performance. And I don't know about you, but that ground is way too unstable for me. So let me explain how we're gonna walk through this search over the next 12 weeks. We decided as a team that instead of predetermining who and what we are and then finding scriptures to make that case week after week, we decided that we just need to figure this out along the way together. So what we decided to do was just to organize this search into three sections. Now the plan is to spend four weeks searching the scriptures to discover what it means when the scriptures say that God made them male and female in his image. The plan is to then spend four weeks searching the scriptures to discover what it means that we have been redeemed, that we have been bought with a price. Now that's the plan. (laughs) But before we even begin either of those journeys, we're gonna spend the first four weeks rooting ourselves in two simple truths. And I have become convinced that this is the right place to start this search. Two simple, fundamental truths that we are known and that we are worth dying for. And we're gonna flesh this out over the next four weeks. But the reason I'm convinced that this is the right place to start is because these truths are both central to what the biblical narrative says about us. But they are also both independent of our performance and our achievement. The Bible never says that we can be known if we fill in the blank. And the Bible never says that we are worth dying for because of anything we've done. The scriptures testify to the simple truth that we are known and that we are worth dying for. And we'll spend the next couple weeks making the case that those two statements are not only true, they are both the beginning and the end of this search that we're on the search for what's true about me and about you. So this week, we're just gonna start by making the case for truth number one, the truth that we are known. Now listen, even with this conversation, um, okay, so some people, we all know them, some of us are them, some people are desperate to be known by everybody, right? And what are those kind of people typically willing to do to be known by everybody? (laughs) Pretty much anything, right? Now, some of you think that's crazy because some of you, if I asked you directly, you would say, look, I just wanna mind my own business. I don't really wanna be noticed. I don't wanna be singled out. I'd rather just be anonymous. 
Okay. But listen, deep down, everybody wants to be known, seen, understood by someone. Now, here's why this conversation is so complex. Because even though we all want to be known, y'all, nobody can fully know us. And even though we want to be seen and understood and known by someone, the reality is that kind of transparency, it's terrifying. Think about my kids. I have known them since they were in their mother's womb. And every time I talk to them and watch them, I notice something new. I see them growing, I see them learning, I see them changing. I don't know what's in the depths of their heart. I don't really know the inner workings of their minds. I have no idea who and what they will become. And I joke about this often, but I've known my wife since we were like 14 and 15 years old. And we have watched each other grow and learn and change. We are known by one another more than by any other human being. And I was looking at her yesterday, as I often do, realizing yet again, as I often do, I have no idea what in that woman's head. (laughs) I don't know what she's thinking. I mean, I teased her at the earlier service. I knew yesterday what she was thinking because with both an Aggie loss and a Texas win, it was not a good day in our household. But look, she can say the same thing about me. Like in all that time we've known each other, we've become like different people. I was, I was telling a Bible study the other day, my wife, this is gonna shock you, my wife has been married to at least two other men. And they're both me. <laughs> and look, I, I can choose to hide from her. I can withhold from her. I might feel like I need to do that sometimes to protect myself, even from her. This is complicated. We desperately want to be fully known, but that's terrifying. And the truth is nobody can fully know us. So listen again to Psalm 139. This time I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Oh Lord, you've examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down or stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I'm gonna say even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to the heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the farthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. I could ask the darkness to hide me and the light around me to become night, but even in darkness I cannot hide from you. To you the night shines as bright as day. Darkness and light are the same to you. You made all the the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. 
You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born, every day of my life recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. I have known my kids since they were in their mother's womb. That is an intimate but incomplete knowledge. I was a part of the process, but I am not the one who knit them together. I am not the one who reached down to the depths of creation and formed them into God's own image and then called them very good. I know my wife and I am known by my wife but I can hide from my wife and I can hide from you. But from God, where can I go? Psalm 139 is such a beautiful piece of art. Like we need to be really careful not to overanalyze it. We need to be careful not to make this impersonal. Um, I was listening to somebody this past week and he made, this is a really profound statement. He said, when you read the Psalms, what we, what we come to realize, what we come to realize is that the writers of the Psalms knew God less than we do. Think about that for a second. The writers of the Psalms, King David, who wrote this Psalm, knew less about God than we do because they had not been revealed. God had not been revealed to them in the person of Jesus Christ. They had not received the full revelation of Christ. They knew God less than we do, but when you read the Psalms, what's really clear is it seems like they might love him more. These psalms are beautiful and personal. And when you read them, you should own them. Let them help you to fall in love with him more. Now we're gonna look at this one psalm over the next couple weeks. We're gonna look at it along with a couple passages in the gospels. And I, I do need to overanalyze just one thing before we're done today. But before I do that, I just wanna invite you to sit in this psalm for just a minute. In particular in verse five. You go before me, like visualize it, you go before me and follow me. The NIRV said you're all around me. You go before me, behind me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Okay, if you'll just humor me for a second, like would, um, would you all just close your eyes? Now close your eyes and if you're willing to mess up your hair, um, rest your hand on top of your head. If you really like the way your hair turned out today, it's okay, just put it on your opposite shoulder. <laughs> but somewhere on your body, rest your hand and apply some pressure. Like feel that weight pressing down on you. Feel the weight and listen again. You go before me and follow me and you place your hand of blessing on my head. When you need a reminder of who you are, where you are and whose you are, take your hand and do this. You can open your eyes and put your hand down. Feel, feel the weight of your hand on your head or on your shoulder. Like what if we took a moment each and every day? What if you would memorize those first six verses and recite them with your hand pressing down somewhere on your body? What if we took a moment each day to practice that kind of physical presence and just do it as a simple reminder that we're not alone? Even more than that, scripture's not saying that we're not alone, it's saying that we are fully known (laughs) and that we are not only held in the palm of his hand, we are completely surrounded by it. What if we started each day remembering that truth?
But listen, there's a difficult truth here too. I mentioned this earlier. For some, hearing that we're fully known, that we're completely exposed, that we cannot run or hide even if we tried, hearing that God knows our thoughts even when we're far away from him, for some, that brings comfort. For others, it's terrifying. The psalmist knows this. King David knows this. The Holy Spirit knows this. That these words can bring comfort and distress. David says it in verse 14. He says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And I've always wrestled with that verse. But listen, this is how there's an an author named Arthur. (laughs) Almost did it backwards. There's an author named Arthur who says it like this. He says, we are finite and limited. And that knowledge stirs up fear. We have the capacity to make choices, but we cannot choose the consequences of our choices. That knowledge stirs up fear. We are fearfully made, and yet we are wonderfully made. We have a unique capacity for wonder, prayer, song, friendship, love, and redemption. So does this bring you comfort, or does it scare you? Listen, why do I hide from others? Why do I hide? I hide because I'm afraid, but I'm not afraid of being exposed. I've thought about this. I'm honestly not afraid because in the times of my life when I've actually been caught, right? When I've been caught doing something wrong, it actually, I actually feel freedom, right? I'm not afraid of being exposed. It, when I am exposed, there's freedom because I don't have to keep up the charade anymore. I don't hide because I'm afraid of being exposed, I hide because I'm afraid of being rejected. And here's the good news for those who find comfort and for those who find distress in this psalm. Arthur continues, he says, God knows us wherever we may be. God searches us, sees us as we are, where we are, and God accepts us. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too great for me to comprehend it. But he goes on to say this. God searches us, sees us as we are, where we are, God accepts us. Acceptance, however, is not the same as approval. Grace, the grace of God, bridges the gap between God's acceptance and God's judgment. I know you've heard this said by other pastors, God loves you so much that he meets you right where you are and accepts you exactly as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. Acceptance is not the same as approval. That's one of those partial lies that our culture is buying into right now. Acceptance is not the same as approval, but here's the point. We don't go from acceptance to approval by cleaning ourselves up. We don't get from acceptance to approval by our performance or by our achievements. The only way to get from acceptance to approval is grace. And that is a freely given gift. And it's given to you by the one who knows you as you are. And he knows you completely. Okay, now that this psalm is both comfortably and uncomfortably personal to us, Um, Let me just quickly overanalyze one thing and then I want to share with you another section from Keller's book to close us out. I'd actually never noticed before um, 
I was reading a book from one of my old professors and he pointed this out. Uh, Psalm 39 begins like this. O Lord, you've examined my heart and know everything about me. This Psalm ends with this. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me, know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Notice how King David describes how it is that God knows everything about me. Like it's not simply because he's God and he just knows. That's not what David says. And we're tempted to think that, right? We think of God's omniscience. God just knows everything. He doesn't even have to do anything. He just knows it because he's God and God knows everything. That's not how David describes it. And in fact, that's rather cold and impersonal. How is it that God knows everything about me? Because he's examined my heart. Because he has searched me. He has tested me. He has sought me out. He has taken the initiative. He is a lover chasing after us, seeking to know us even when we're far away. He knows me because he's done the work of getting to know me, me in my mess and you in yours. From the opening pages of scripture in Genesis, God is a God who is in hot pursuit of his creation. There's a rabbi from the 20th century named Abraham Heschel. He wrote a book that's impossible to read. <laughs> it's impossible to read. I recommended it to somebody, almost lost a friend over it. <laughs> but the ironic thing is you actually don't need to read the book because the title says everything the book says. The title of the book is God in Search of Man. His whole point is that from the beginning at the end, that's the direction. He says, we are not seeking God. If anything, we're running the other direction. But from beginning to end, God has always been a God who is searching after us, who is chasing after us. Now, why? Why would he do that? Why would he pursue, why would he pursue you and me? Because the Bible also says he's madly in love with us. Why? Why is he madly in love with us? Is it because of something we've achieved? Is it because we've performed well? Because we've been obedient? Because we've earned it or deserve it? No. Is it because God needs something from us? Is it because God is incomplete without us? Do we meet some need that God can't meet on his own? I would argue no. God pursues us and loves us because God is love and he shares that love with the ones that he's formed in their mother's womb in the depths of the earth. God shares that intimate and knowing love simply because he's chosen to. God loves you and if I could look at every one of you, I was talking to somebody the other day, it's almost like, no, this is stupid. Anyway, it's like with a kid, if I could just hold you by your cheeks and I like just look at you in the eye and just tell you one last thing. Like you are loved not because of anything you've done. You are loved because the lover has chosen to love you. God, I know so many people who need to hear that. It would change their lives. It's changed mine. Okay, let me share one last thing. Um, so I've shared this before and I'm always hesitant uh, to be repetitive 
but I'm learning that repetition helps important stuff become a part of our DNA. I just, I have to tell you on Thursday, I shared something with the retired men. <laughs> yep, yeah, yeah. Well, I won't single you out, but anyway, you know if you were there. Um, I'm telling you, I shared something with the retired men and it was like a bomb went off. Everybody was like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I've never heard that before. Man, I know in that room, I've shared that at least three other times. <laughs> I've done it in here three other times since I've been back. Anyway, I'm learning that repetition is really important for the important stuff to become a part of our DNA, right? So what I'm about to read, just bear with me if it sounds immediately familiar to you. Just hear the point that he's making. So Keller writes this in Jesus the King and he's talking about love. He says, all human beings know the difference between false and true love, between fake and authentic love. And here's the difference. In false love, your aim is to use the other person to fulfill your happiness. Your love is conditional. You give it only as long as the person is affirming you and meeting your needs. It's not vulnerable because you hold back so that you can cut your losses if necessary. But in true love, your aim is to spend yourself and use yourself for the happiness of the other because your greatest joy is that person's joy. Therefore, your love and affection is unconditional. You give it regardless of whether your loved one is meeting your needs and it's radically vulnerable. You spend everything, you hold nothing back, you give it all away. And he says this, and hang with this, this is hard. He says, our real problem is that nobody is actually fully capable of giving true love. And our brokenness, our sinful nature is the reason why. He says, we want it desperately, but we can't give it. Because we need to be loved like we need air and water, we can't live without love. And that means that there's a certain mercenary quality to our relationships. A tendency to look for people whose love will really affirm us. A tendency to invest our love only where we know we'll get a good return. And when we do that, our love is conditional, it's not vulnerable, because we're not loving the person simply for himself or herself, we're loving the person at least in part for what we're getting in return. And that's not meant to be harsh. Listen, that doesn't perfectly describe every relationship. There are clearly some who are more capable of unselfish love than others, but that is just the messy truth of human relationships. And to some degree, we all experience that. But he continues. He says, what we need is someone to love us who doesn't need us. What we need is someone who loves us radically, unconditionally, vulnerably, someone who loves us just for our sake. And if we received that kind of love, it would so assure us of our value, it would so assure us of who and what we are, it would so fill us up that maybe we could start to give love like that too. There's only been one person. Y'all, I love my wife. I really love my wife. I really love my kids. You guys, you can say the same exact thing, right? Men, you better say, yeah, look at my wife. You better say, yeah. But I'm telling you, there's only one person in human history who is fully capable of what we just described. And that's Jesus. And he proved it. He proved his love. He gave his love 
by carrying his cross. He proved his love and gave his love by living the life we couldn't live, by dying the death that we should have died, by paying the price for us, achieving for us what we can never achieve for ourselves. Y'all, you don't get more radical, unconditional, and vulnerable than that. What if we internalized this truth? What if this is where we begin in this search? Accepting and internalizing the truth that we are fully known. That we don't have to look to our culture. I don't have to look to my culture or even my family. I don't have to look deep within myself to find out who I am. I don't have to settle for those partial truths. I am already fully known. If you want to know who you really are, the shape of your identity, all you have to do is turn to the one who already knows you. Who has searched you. He's examined you. He knows you fully. We are known because we've been pursued, sought out, tested, and examined. Yes, that means that we've been found out. We're exposed. And still we've been accepted and loved. Loved so much that the lover says that we are worth dying for. And we'll begin to look at that fundamental truth next week. Let's pray. Father, I wanna pray specifically this morning that for the next four weeks, whatever it is that we think and believe about ourselves, whatever voices might be speaking into our lives, even the little voice within us, that we could just set that to the side. We don't have to ignore it, there's truth in it. But just set it aside for a minute so that we can take a full month to simply embrace and settle in this truth that your scriptures tell us that you know us fully as we are, that you have accepted us fully as we are, and that for some reason that you believe the person you see, the person you know, the person you found, the person you accepted, that that person is worth dying for. Help us to take a significant period of time and just sit in that truth. Let it become a part of our DNA, the foundation from which we ask the question as we try to understand who you made us to be and who you're calling us to be. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all God's people said.